So I've got 1,800 people I have to take care of. And I think about that every day. And not just their financial well-being, but I think about their mental health. I think about making sure that they're growing their careers and all that good stuff. And then, you know, we look at the customers and a lot of these customers are my friends now. My dream wasn't to have a certain number. My dream wasn't necessarily to have a certain valuation. My dream was just to make an impact. And I think we're making a profound impact on people's lives. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. You look like a movie star Shut right up. now. Shut up. <laughs> Stop it. It's Stop. like the, these are my $40 glasses. The trendy glasses, no, no, the green no, blazer, are, the are, light blue. This is lens.com, 40 bucks. Light, light blue shirt. You got the fancy shoes on. You look like you're going to a Broadway show in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment, Absolutely. man. Absolutely. Yeah. Where did you come from? Right down the street. Okay. I was at Sequoia before that. I was. I live in Portola Valley. Yeah, so yeah. It's perfect. Okay. It's like seven minutes. Yeah, you're at Sequoia next door. Yeah. It's funny when I come here. Sequoia is literally you can see it from this room. You can see it. Right. I have a tendency to take phone calls walking outside. Yeah. And so I realized I'm like I can't really take the phone calls that I need to take on this side of the parking lot. I have to go to this side of the parking <laughs> lot because it's Silicon Valley Bank right, on that right, side, right. Sequoia on this yeah, side. Yeah, right. Gotta be careful what you're saying yeah, around here. Of course. <laughs> Maybe Sand Hill's not that. That's great. Well, dude, I'm looking forward yeah. to doing this. Yeah. I'm no, super excited. Well, thank you for having us. This yeah. is great. This is awesome. All right, man. Well, yeah. I've spent about 36 hours getting to know you quite well. Okay, I heard you're making your rounds. I, I got mean, text messages from people. People being your executives or your board or a little bit, yeah. a little bit uh, of both. A bit of the board, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Ellie, who is this fucking guy? <laughs> right, What's this right. guy doing? What should I do? What should I What's say? This? I said, just take the call. It's fine. What's this guy doing? What's this? And I always have to, I always have to give him the... Look, whatever you tell me, I'm not going to attribute to you. Yeah. And also, if we get into anything that Andy doesn't want to talk about, yeah. we'll remove it. Yeah. Anyway. Cool. All right, man. Cool. Well, I start all these things the same way, so let's get going. I will read your background back to you. Yeah. You got your MBA from San Jose State, bachelor's degree from University of Nevada, yep. MBA from San Jose State. Correct. Good. And yep. then, is it Mylan? Uh, yeah, Milan, Milan, Milan. Milan, yeah. Okay, that's a guy, fancy. guy by the name of Mike Conrad, and then it was local area networks. He was the founder of the company, so right. it was Milan. Right, right, right. Like Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield Buyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And you're a BDR, is that? Right? I was a BDR. Okay, first, yeah, first job in tech. BDR. I love that. And then yeah. you went to Bay Networks or Synoptics, or I went to Synoptics Bay. Yep, yep. Right, as they were being as Synoptics was merging with a company called Wellfleet. Yeah. Back in the East, I was right there during the merger. Was Doug Merritt at bay when you were there? Was Doug there? I don't know. I don't okay. know. He anyway. might have. Maybe even it wasn't even at bay. Then you went to Vital Signs or you went to somewhere else that got acquired by Vital Signs, something like that? Uh, no, I went to Vital Signs. So Jim Getz was at Synoptics Bay Networks. Mm-hmm. So got it. Jim was the general manager of their Optivity Network management software mm-hmm. products. He left to start 
vital signs and I was a hand, one of a handful of folks that came over and started working on that, which was doing application performance management. How big was the company when you joined? Ish. I want to say 50. Okay. Boys? Pretty small. Yeah. Pretty small. Okay. You had a decent run there? Uh, we had a, a pretty good run, partly due to the dot com. So we were acquired by International Network Services, mm-hmm. INS. INS was then acquired by Lucent. Mm-hmm. And it had a rough valuation of, at the time, I remember Jim Getz saying the extrapolation is that the valuation of Vital Science was at about north of $400 million. And if you look at back then, that was a, relatively, a relatively big valuation. Uh-huh. Fun story for you. I was living in San Francisco. Uh-huh. How old are you? Oh, gosh. So I was there in 97. And then, so how old is that? I'm, I was 27 years old. Okay. 27. But I was thinking about buying in Portola Valley. Uh I had this tiny little house. It was a million bucks. And I thought, I can't believe I'm going to spend a million dollars on a 1,400 square foot house. My wife and I moved from San Francisco down here. We bought the house. I was kicking and screaming. And the Lucent stock went from 46 to 65. After you bought it? After I bought it. I went, oh, God damn it. And then, boom. Bottom fell out and Lucent went down to eight bucks a share. And I looked like a genius, just got lucky. And so we had taken all Oh, you sold the shares at 46 in order to buy the house. I sold at 46. Right. It goes to 65 and I'm so bummed. Of course. And then all of a sudden it goes to like eight bucks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Same. Are you still in the same house? No, no. We've upgraded. Same neighborhood. Yeah. But- yeah, and then I moved my parents into the house next door to us. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Portola Valley's like, it's like a vacation every day. During COVID, because this reminds me a lot of what just happened in the last couple of yeah. years. Yeah. I remember, whatever, March of 2020, by April, May, the stocks were like bottoming out pretty significantly. End of March, I think. And it was like shopping in Marshalls. Like it was, everything was on a discount, like a serious discount. Yeah. So it kind of feels like that today. And I remember I bought a bunch of stocks of companies that I always liked. Three months later, they doubled. And I was like, this is unreasonable. Like this is, there's no way this is going to sustain. Yep. Sold them all. And so for the last year and a half, I have felt like the world's biggest idiot, right? Like (laughs) not only am I paying the taxes on it, right? right? Like I just felt so dumb. (laughs) Anyway, I feel a little bit better now, but I felt really dumb for a really long time. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) you know, we raised this most recent round in December of last year with the Blackstone as the lead. And people say, incredible timing, Andy. You know, you timed it perfectly. (laughs) And I just say to everybody, you know, Luck makes you look smart. Oh, I'd rather be lucky than you good. Know? And yes, we had a lot of inbound interest in the company and we didn't have to raise. We had $150 million in the bank and half the board was saying, I don't think you need to raise. It's too much of a distraction. And the other half was going, well, maybe you should think about it. And we spent a lot of time with the Blackstone folks and I was just so impressed with their scale and their operational thinking. And then we saw Jen... Morgan, who is over there now, Jen is the former co-CEO of SAP. And I just loved her thinking. She's a very impressive go-to-market strategist. And so 
yeah, we got lucky. We signed the term sheet in mid-December, December 20th. And, you know, we had between term sheet and definitive agreement and funding, you just saw this news happening mm-hmm. of, hey, interest rates and supply chain and more COVID. I'm going, oh, God, this. I was just excited to see the wired funds and the partnership with Blackstone's just been incredible. One of those things where you're holding your breath, refreshing your bank statements, <laughs> just making sure. That- I did say to my CFO, as soon as the wire comes in, can you send me a screenshot, please? <laughs> and now, you know, we've always been stable stewards of our capital. Always. I'm not 25, I'm 51. Yeah. I feel even more responsibility as the fiduciary to, to make sure that we're being smart, even though we have effectively an infinite runway. Yep. No doubt. I'm going to get there. Let me finish the background. I have some questions about Andy, and then I have Uh some very specific questions about the business. Sweet. You then left Vital Signs and founded a company called Timestock. Yep. Which was acquired by Wiley. Correct. Good, bad, great outcome. What? what? Uh, I would say, I I mean, good for me personally. Yeah. It was a small, I mean, it was 18 of us at the time that we got acquired. So it was a small, Mm -hmm. the valuation of it was roughly around 40 million. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of people did really well. We worked for 18 months, no cash, no capital. pretty sweet. I was burning through my 401k. My wife and family were going, what are you doing? And my wife was saying, okay, I got you. This is going to be, I believe in you. A lot of family members saying, shouldn't you just go get a job at a bigger company? And it ended up paying off. So it's great. I don't know where I read it, but you said I was burning through my 401k. This is during time stock. I was burning through my 401k, didn't make money for almost 18 months. My house was under construction right. and I almost lost my son. Right. I don't know where I read that, but that yeah. didn't seem like a... We call it the dark year. Yeah. My son had meningitis and was in a coma down at Stanford ICU for 17 days. Didn't move. We had all kinds of specialists and he had encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain. Fortunately, he was young enough. He was only four months and the plasticity of the brain and the skull had not formed yet. So even though there was a lot of trauma, he's turned out to be great. I mean, it was a very hard year and it was a kind of a shattered dream moment for parents. There was a moment where I remember I was reading this book called Man's Search for Meeting by Dr. Richard Frankel, which is a book that got me through it. And it talks about our ability to deal with a lot of negative stimulus. And then we have a chance to choose how we want to respond to the stimulus. Poor me, I'm a victim. Why is this happening to me? And then eventually you want to shift and you say, this is what it is. Like, Mm. this is my life. I'm going to go for it. And just hearing about what his struggles in the concentration camps back in Nazi Germany and his struggles was an inspiring narrative for us, my wife and I, to get through that time. And so, yeah, it was running a startup, not making any money. Your son almost dies, loses all of his hearing. And we just kept right on going. And now my son is that gentleman. His name is John Max. He is proud to say that he is off to NYU next year. Wow. And fun fact, he's going to the Tisch School of Performing Arts. Wow. It's kind of cool. That's very cool. Yeah. So like you have all these other things going on that are need to be dealt with, but that probably don't matter at that time. How do you deal with anything else 
when I assume you wake up and go to bed and everything pretty much in between is consumed with your son. Did you do any of the other things that you had to, the company, the employees, the house? I was not in a good state for sure to operate the company and be the best executive. When you have a good team around you, they help you get through Mm -hmm. and you lean on the team. That's so crazy. When you go through tragedy, and by the way, the same year my father-in-law died in the tsunami in 2004 and my mother-in-law died of cancer 45 days later. So it was this like, yeah, it was a sequence of events. So all this was happening with the startup, my son, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, that's why we call it the dark year. Pretty dark year. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much what most people go through in a lifetime happened in 13 months for us. And people might be saying, wow, Andy, this is really personal information. Why would you bring that up? I mean, uh, why is it relevant to be talking about this? Because I think a lot of people struggle in life and you want to share that, you know, they're not alone and you realize that life can be good again. And I believe that my wife and I see life through a different set of lenses and there is a silver lining to going through a lot of tragedy in that you just appreciate the color of the sky, the light breeze that goes through and meeting a new person that you think is super cool. You know, you're more present and you're just more grateful for the things that you have in your life. When things pile on like that, what is your instinct? Is it problem-solving mode? Is it support? Is it shutting down? Mm. What is your natural, like, how does that feel internally? Well, I think it's changed, right? I mean, dramatically over time. I mean, back then, 2003 and 2004, it was paralysis. It was just don't know how to think about how life is going to be. And I didn't have the mental, keyword, mental capacity to deal with a lot of that trauma. And to this day, we, my wife and I still have PTSD on stuff that we see happen to, it, whether it's in a movie or mm-hmm. something that we see happens to one of our kids where we're jumping out and trying to help even though they're 18 and 19. <laughs> but the book, Man's Search for Meaning, really calls this out is that if you focus on how you train your brain to react to a lot of chaos and a lot of negative signal. And if you can just be with it mentally and you can say, wow, this is interesting. You know, there's the idea of why is this happening to me? And I think this is in the book versus what is this asking of me? How, what's my job now that I have all of this crazy stuff that's going on around me? Back then I couldn't do that, right? Now I've been doing meditation work for now half decade and I'm 51. And so I'm learning a lot about psychology of how the brain works and how people behave. And I think that how I deal with it now is I can effectively compartmentalize and say, okay, we have a real problem here. Let me be with the emotion. You can't ignore the emotion. The emotion's going to come and, you know, you can't just, You're like, okay, here it all is. I'm feeling it all. This is horrible. Be with it. And then you can say, if you've done that really well, you actually have an easier time of saying, okay, I'm going to know. I'm going to go put that on the shelf. 
And now how do I operate logically and how do I execute? That's a skill set. That's a mental skill set that you can hone over time that I think can be taught. Now, some people don't have the cognitive or psychological ability to do that. They suffer from some sort of disorder, depression, bipolar, whatever it might be, and they can't. But for those that are fortunate enough to have the capacity, you can actually learn this skill and be really good. And so how do we put that in a work context? I started Clary from scratch. We're now 600 people. And when you're at this level of scale, there's always something that's not going right. Like the law of large numbers, right? And that stuff, you have to get really good mentally at just saying, these are things that I just have to deal with. And I remember talking to a colleague of mine who'd said, I came to him with a set of problems and a set of things that were going well. And he said, on the right side, tell me about these good things that happened. I said, well, we had raised and we had closed a bunch of customers and I forget what else it was. Maybe we'd acquired a new office space. On the other side, a key engineer had left. A customer had said that they're really disappointed in the latest release and maybe something else. He said, there's good things and there's bad things. And he went through this mental framing with me of, okay, let's just look and how do you feel about all the good things? How do you feel about the bad things? And you go back and forth and back and forth. And he said, now let's bring them all together. Let's bring the three good things and the three bad things together and look at them. And how do you feel? And I said to him, I feel neutral. They're just things. They're just moments in time. And I think that learning for me is that you have these amplitudes of good things and bad things and how we deal with the emotional amplitudes of it. Going back to your question about how do I deal with big things, struggle, you know, problems that we face, the chaos. If you can kind of smooth out the amplitudes and you can look at them as just things and you can expand yourself out on a longer time horizon is Jubin 10 years from now, what would Jubin say to Jubin today about the current problem? 10 years from now, Jubin's going to say, dude, it's fine. It's all going to work out. I've heard you describe yourself as the old Andy and the new Andy. And I think that that's kind of what you're referencing. The way that I've, I was just talking to one of our founders about this. He was just talking about how his emotional band has become so narrow. Like it's very thin in the sense that it doesn't swing. Mm. It doesn't swing that much. When I hear about the old and new Andy, is it more specific to learning how to be more just flatline? I think it depends on internal versus external. So what do I mean by that? I actually don't subscribe to the fact that you're supposed to have this the way you feel versus the way you express. Feeling is internal, expression is external. So on feeling, I think it's really important for you to be able to feel the highs and the lows, to take it all in. We freaking won. That was awesome, right? Take all that in. Use that. And the stuff that's bad, you should be okay with being really sad and really emotional and really bummed internally, right? But then you should know how to actually use those emotions. When you're external, you are that stable steward. So the emotional band externally is not this 
bipolar-ish. Oh my God, Andy's off the charts, so excited now. Oh God, he's so depressed. And maybe that's what that founder meant. My band is more narrow. Yep. Therefore, they are a stable steward and I feel so much more comfortable around that person because they're just so calm. But internally, I think you should let those emotions, you know, you should really feel into it. I remember sitting across from him thinking, boy, I aspire to be more like that. And I remember walking out of dinner just thinking, there's no way, I am too expressive. There's no way, it is very hard for me to not feel those feelings and then share them. I actually think one of the things that I do okay is I share them neutrally, mm. but I have to share them. Like the, yeah. the, I have to express the emotion that I feel. But the ways that I experience highs and lows, I think that band is much higher than most people, if that makes sense. It's much broader. Yeah. Well, I think everyone's different, but you know, one of the tools that I use that is my just method is that I have certain people that I go to that are my go-to founders and will have a therapy session, I call it. I said, oh man, thanks for that therapy session. <laughs> right? Yeah, or a coach or whatever it is. Yeah, yep. and you'll say, okay, I'm good. Yep. I'm good. And I'll call up my head of products and I'll say, hey, Kurt, quick therapy session. And he'll say, okay, go. And I think it's good to have those people where you can be your true authentic self, Juven, yep. right? I agree. And then you can say, that's good. I got it. Now you help me with how I think about my framing and how I'm going to communicate. Yep. I um, totally agree. Yeah. I could keep going for this on hours. So, okay. You go to Clearwell. You're part of the exec, like the founding executive team at Clearwell, correct? Yep. Clearwell, kind of a funny, intricate history here, but the CEO that comes in is Arif. Yes. Correct? Right. Arif Halali. Arif, who is now at Sequoia. Sorry, at Bain Capital. At Bain. Was at Sequoia. Right. And is on your board. Correct. And he was the CEO of Clearwell. And yes. then you get acquired by Symantec. Right. Who I believe at the time, Enrique. Correct. Who is on your board. Yeah. Was the CEO <laughs> of Symantec. Yeah. <laughs> and I know both these guys. Yeah. Great guys. Oh, they're uh, wonderful. Great guys. Yeah. So then you get acquired for, call it about $400 million. Yep. Another good, pretty good run. What surprised me was like 80 million-ish run rate, $400 million outcome. Times have changed. I know, Times yeah. Well, changed. maybe we're going back to those valuations, right? They're both on your board, which is awesome. And yeah. now both at Bain Capital, right? Right. And then you started Clary in January of 2013. Correct. You are the co-founder and CEO. You, like you mentioned earlier, raised your last round from Blackstone, the Series E? Yep, Series F. Series F. Yep. At what valuation? 2.6. 2.6 billion. It's amazing. Maybe like 30 seconds or less. What does Clary do for the audience listening? 30 seconds or less. We help CEOs and CROs drive more efficiency, growth, and predictability across their end-to-end -end revenue process. So, you know, what do CEOs and boards care about, especially in this environment? They care about revenue. That's the number one most important thing. And we help the CEOs answer the most important question in business, which is, are they going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? So that's what we do. In 2013, you have all this mojo, tailwind. You have a co-founder you've worked with. Yeah. You have the team that you know. Yeah. They're ready to back you. Yeah. And the way that I understand it, let me just play it back to sure. you, and then you tell me where I'm wrong. Sure. Is that there was a technology trend 
that you and your co-founder had first identified around AI. And what it felt like to me, and nobody actually said this to yeah. me, but just as I start to put dots together, was that you thought, all right, this is going to change the way that business works. And so we're going to use AI and apply that to a problem. We're not exactly sure what problem we're going to try and solve yet. And then out comes Clary applying AI to revenue. How far off am I or mischaracterizing that? You're two clicks off on this, but you're pretty close. So Two clicks is closer than I usually am. <laughs> so technology, yes, we felt like machine learning was going to do something big in enterprise software. So we actually started puzzling through the idea with Sequoia back in 2012. Venkat, my co-founder, came to me and he said, look, there's only four companies that are doing large-scale machine learning and they're in the consumer space. It's Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. There was not anyone doing large-scale machine learning in enterprise software. If you look at the ERP or the CRM vendors, you look at the legacy folks, Salesforce, Oracle, SAP, Microsoft, they were on 30-year-old architectures in their CRM and their ERP instances. So that's the idea we thought, okay, let's go build a new type of data store that can be a system of aggregation and be able to time series snapshot and predict the future of enterprise work and help enterprise workers with artificial intelligence so that they can realize their fullest potential. Now, after we raised the Series A, Sequoia said, team that's done it before, great, we've done this with them. Big trend that's yet to pierce the enterprise, artificial intelligence, large incumbents that were on legacy architectures. Let's go. Very quickly after that, we realized, hey, we're going to start in sales. So it wasn't revenue immediately, it was sales. And we had realized much to our surprise that as the CRM market went from a SFA set of use cases, Salesforce automation use cases, to more platform-based use cases, and you saw companies like Salesforce go from sales cloud to service cloud to marketing cloud to commerce cloud, and they went broad platform, obviously, incredible company, incredible strategy. It just felt like to us as entrepreneurs that there was a core set of use cases that no one was really solving for. And so we decided we would build new workflows on top of this new data store that had never been inside the enterprise before. And those new workflows would help a rep close their deals faster, help a manager drive more revenue and help an executive boost the accuracy and predictability of their forecasts. That's how we started called it a predictive sales management solution. And it took off where the CRM had failed sales teams. We saw a lot of success. So that's how it got going. Now, to your question about revenue, why is it revenue? Is that we just started to see the expansion of our license footprint go beyond sales teams. Yep, that makes which sense. Which is how we came into us realizing, wow, it's so much more than sales. It's around revenue. I think you were like working in your co-founder's garage to get this thing going. Yeah. How long did it take from starting to getting what you thought was a V1 out the door, if you will? Like, when did you feel yeah. like, oh, I can go sell? Like, I can, I can go sell well, this Well, I, I can tell you the story. So we started with the rep. We built a mobile app. And where Salesforce One Mobile was not getting any traction, we were getting a ton of traction with mobile. And we had transformed the lives of those reps. Came back to the board. They were super excited. Wow, this is awesome. And we realized, well, how much will they pay? Mm, not a lot. 
So we said, hey, let's go solve for the manager. And we said, we talked to the managers and they said, it's totally broken for me. I'm in Excel spreadsheets. The CRM does, my reps are forced to manually enter data. So we said, okay, we'll solve for that. And we realized, okay, if we can solve for the rep and the manager, we'll have economics that might be super interesting and we can start to expand that. And as we talked to the managers, they said, you know, if you look up above us and you go talk to my regional director, my geo lead, my CRO, my CFO, it's a nightmare of Excel spreadsheets all over the place. I came back to the engineers and I said, it's Excel hell and we can go solve all this. So we built this end-to-end system that would allow them to control how sales works in a way that the CRM never could. And it's when we solved for that, we called the golden triangle, rep, manager, exec. We didn't know what the hell we were going to call it. We just said, let's go build that. And when we had that going and we started to see organic growth of reps we're in, managers we're in, we said, okay, we can monetize this. And, you know, we got to the point where our unit economics were better than CRM unit economics and a lot of our accounts. Was there a moment that crystallized for you where you were like, okay, there's actually legs to this thing? Was it a time when the triangle triangulated or a deal that came in early that just made you feel like maybe we're not wandering in the dark anymore. Maybe this is actually potentially repeatable. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's product market fit and then there's go to market fit. If I take each one of those in turn, we knew we had product market fit where when we saw that we were showing up to train salespeople in a sales kickoff and we were proactively being invited to come to their kickoffs. And I was on stage and we had 3,000 people that were opening up their laptops. And I was on a podium going, okay, log in. And that they had all log in. And I'd show them how to go through the new world of managing their opportunities, inspecting their pipeline, being able to track net dollar retention, all these different use cases where they were tired of being in what people call the three-headed hydra, CRM, Excel, and BI. And so it was that moment where I thought, wow, we're becoming a strategic business system across thousands of people in some of these companies. And we realized, wow, as it expanded beyond that, you know, into marketing was starting to use it. We had people coming in from marketing. We had people coming in from renewals teams, from finance, et cetera. We realized there's this insatiable desire for all the revenue critical people to collaborate in one system. So that was a moment where I came back and I thought to my wife, Julie, I said, you're not going to believe what just happened. I just got back from Vegas. There's 3,000 people. And I felt like when I was done, I felt like a celebrity. I'm walking out of this big convention hall and people are shaking my hands, wanting to meet. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. So that's one. Two, when we started to see at scale is that when we started to see CROs were actually proactively reaching out to us because CROs, they all know each other. They're a super connected community. Our highest growth cohort right now are the C-suite executives that are across all the management teams that are using Clary every day. You thought and, maybe there's a category. When you start to get inbound like that, there's a category that's come, like you're getting pulled, not pushing. Yes. Signals on category. We weren't sure about category yet. What we were sure of is that we had go-to-market fit. We started to see pipeline building. And some of the pipeline that was being built 
was not any outbound. It was a handful of inbounds coming in saying, hey, I heard about from my colleague that over at Adobe, they're loving your product. I want to try it. And we started then building our marketing engine and our sales go to market engine. And that started to take off too. So we had a beautiful product market fit moment. It was just sales at that point. But now what we're seeing is that if you think about CRM, the R in CRM is relationships. And you think about ERP, the R in ERP is resource. It's not revenue. And the biggest thing hiding in plain sight that we saw is that there's no enterprise approach to revenue. There's no single purpose-built application that's been designed from the ground up to run the end-to-end revenue process and help the CEOs answer the most important question, will they meet, beat, or miss? And that's been our aha that's driving the company. And to your question about, oh, revenue and category, I think that just started to happen whether we were here or not, AI was a big trend, right? It was the only way that you've heard this probably a thousand times. The only way a small company becomes a big company has got to be a big wave that you're riding. AI was a big wave. The organizational change was a big wave inside of these companies. It was no longer a VP of sales. It's a chief revenue officer. And you had people redesigning and saying, we got to run this thing like one process, but there was no software to do it, right? You had marketing automation, you had CRM, you had some stuff over there to help with customer success. And I think we're just the beneficiary of AI. We're the beneficiary of this. People care about revenue as the most important process in business. You've never been to see 500 people, 500 person company? 600. 600. You've never been to, is this what you expected? You've probably always dreamed about being a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company and what that would feel like in the teams that you can build and the impact that you can make for customers and all those things. Is being the CEO of a company like this what you thought it would be? Well. I mean, and I know there's an answer of like, I love my team. No, I'm really no, lucky. I, I, what I'd say is this. Here, here, my, my maybe unorthodox answer is this. I remember watching RF Halali be the CEO of Clearwell and he was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But- the amount of stress that he took on was, it, it got to a point where I thought, wow, I don't know if I ever want to be a CEO. And he's just a gem, by the way. He's one of the best human beings, one of the smartest thinkers on the planet. He's been a wonderful board member. You know, for me, it's less about the role and it's more about the vision that we had. And we think that, you know, what we could build is we could make it an amazing impact on people's lives. And our job, everyone says, We need to help people realize their fullest potential. You hear that a lot right now. Our version of that is we're helping really smart people solve really hard problems in the most important business process in the company, which is revenue. But is the CEO job that RF had the same CEO job that you have today? No, not at all. My job is actually more complicated because we're at more scale and we have to deal with different issues that RF did not have to deal with, which is... In the sense that things that happen in the world yeah. bleed into yeah. the walls of the office yeah, no, it's in ways that did not. It's wild. And you have to address them. You don't have to, but it's important to address it. Did I want to do this? I hadn't really thought about, well, I want to be a thousand person company, a 600 person company. What I thought was I loved my entrepreneurial path of creating something from nothing. 
and we did that, right? And we've really transformed the lives of many people that care deeply about revenue. What's now happening is I'm realizing that I have a larger fiduciary duty for many, many people. I'm not just the 600 people, but times three of on average on the family. So I've got 1,800 people I have to take care of. And I think about that every day. And not just their financial well-being, but I think about their mental health. I think about making sure that they're growing their careers and all that good stuff. And then, you know, we look at the customers and a lot of these customers are my friends now, Mm -hmm. literally. You can't let them down. My dream wasn't to have a certain number. My dream wasn't necessarily to have a certain valuation. My dream was just to make an impact. And I think we're making a profound impact on people's lives. So many people, same theme over and over again. Andy runs the best board meeting I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) And you have a big board. There's a lot of people on your board. I love my board. I guess you got to keep the ship tight. Tell me, tell the audience about your board meetings. I have heard that you have every executive prepare basically the story, like their narrative of what's going on in their business prepackaged for the board so that everyone has not just the slides and the data, yeah. but like the story. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we thought about, I don't know if it's the Amazon way, but we do a lot of writing at the company. And for those people that are wondering, hey, how do we do it? I force each exec to go with their direct reports and write me a letter to each department and we roll it all up. It's less for the board and it's actually more a calibration tool for all of us. And my expectation is that every single executive is going to find time on a Sunday all day and they're going to rip through the board note. We call it the board note and it's detailed. I mean, this we just shipped one off yesterday for my board meeting tomorrow it's 60 pages. It goes through everything. It's fully transparent. And I call it the a la carte menu. So some of the board members, they want to pick and if they want to go focus on one area, I might call a board member and say, hey, can you focus on product? Go dig into that. I really want your brain on that. And I look at the brains on my board. They each have their own superpowers. And sometimes I'll just say, because they're not going to read through the whole note. Yep. It's actually more for the team. To clarify their thinking on their business. Yeah. And what happens is you go, oh, wow, I I had no idea that was going on. Right? To your point, we're 600 people. You're not going to know everything that's going on. The people- You're saying as a forcing function for them to go interrogate and investigate the things that are happening with their teams. And it's not to interrogate. It's to see how we can help. Yep. And it's a really powerful tool. So we do that on board management. We've got a lot of slides that go through. And then come the day of the board meeting, I'm trimming slides and I say, we're going to talk about three topics. That's it. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is lots of CEOs think that they've got to give a bunch of updates and they've got to talk about the things that where, hey, I've got my hand on the tiller. I got this. You have to obviously showcase that. But I think it's more important is to bring up to the board the things where you're struggling, and then here's your plan. Get them to react. Be intellectually honest and bring that up. Boards hate surprises. And then work with them on, hey, what are what's the one topic that matters? I mean, I just talked about this with my e-staff this week saying, we did all these slides, but I always say, okay, what's the one topic? If we just spent time on that one topic, and it doesn't have to be structured. 
doesn't have to be driven by slides. You got a bunch of super smart people. Your job is to activate and then orchestrate their think and realize, okay, who's not chimed in? What superpower can I activate right now? And what happens is we get through the hardest topics and the, we walk out of there saying that was the best use of time. And if your measure of, was that a good board meeting? If your measure is, well, they loved everything. That's not a good board meeting. A good board meeting is, wow, I didn't think about it that way. That was really interesting, the way they thought about it. I love the way that they pushed our thinking. And one of the jobs of a CEO is to hear your exec say one thing and to go, can I ask you, Jim Getz, to show us the counter argument and push debate and not be afraid to have it go lively? And then, of course, you time box it and I make sure that my board meetings never go over. It always starts on time and we're very efficient. It starts at 9 a.m. and it ends at 12. And we get two bio breaks for three minutes. And, you know, I run a tight ship, but I look at it like this is the most important meeting, arguably, with all of these investors. They've given me all their capital. I have a fiduciary responsibility to make the best use of that time. I have heard you say or read, I don't know where, I read a lot of Andy stuff, but man, that must've been boring. It was <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I enjoy it. If I didn't enjoy the prep, I shouldn't be doing this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's what cool. a gift for me to be able to just that's, study people that I'm fascinated that's by. That's great that you love your work. That's why, that's why I work at Kleiner. Yeah. I enjoy being around this type of person. Yeah. No, it's, I get it. It's, it's, being around smart people who are a little crazy. A little nuts. Yeah. A little risky. Is, is fun. It's yeah. Um, it's great. You said that the myth that the CEO is the loneliest job in the world, right? you just don't agree with. Don't agree with it at all. Go ahead. I think it's a function of your team. And do you have a team that's in play with you? And do you have a board that trusts you and you trust them? And that you've got high intellectual capacity, high empathy people who are just naturally good human beings? If you can lean on your board and your e-staff and you don't feel like I'm all alone in this decision and I can't really express my emotions or express my fear or my anxiety about the things that might not be working well mm -hmm. or about uncertainty about the path ahead. And so I think it's more a function of you got to pick the right people on your board. You got to Make sure you pick right in terms of your recruiting, your executive capacity. And if you do that, it actually doesn't feel like it's just you on an island. Mm -hmm. You can pick up the phone. You can call people. You can say, I haven't really thought about this. This is super raw. And Ajay Agarwal of Bain Capital will say, okay, I got you. I'm ready. Go for it. And we'll just riff on something and he'll give me some great feedback. The lonely executive is afraid to make that call. I'm going, man, I just feeling like they're on this isolated island. And maybe that's a function of the board member and not necessarily the executive is the board member needs to, they, a lot of these investors, they talk a big game about it's your company, it's your decision and I'm with you. And, but maybe they're, I don't know. I'll just throw out this maybe a crazy idea here is that 
the job of an executive is to create a space of safety for all the employees and their direct reports to be able to say anything that's on their mind, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? So you get all the real data and you can make the best decisions. If you don't do that, you're not able to get all the data and you're making bad decisions and it's just like culturally, it's not going to be a fun company to work at. I mean, maybe there's that same idea for the relationship between the CEO and the board members, you know, and that board member needs to intentionally, authentically create space for that CEO to go and have these vulnerable conversations with them. Maybe that's a big unlock. I don't know. Sure helps that you've known some of them for so long. I know. Implicit trust is a hell of a is a hell of a weapon in your, yeah, in your for arsenal. Sure. You don't tell me what happened in the board meeting, but like maybe we can just pander on this for a second. Sure. So you lived through the tech crash in 0102. You were part of the financial crisis in 0809. You're in technology. You've seen these things go up and down. Yeah. And we were talking earlier. You said, look, the Blackstone raise was opportunistic. I liked the partner there. I wanted to partner with her. We had years of runway, so you have a couple more years of runway. Like You're in a very good spot. There's a quote that, as I was thinking about this, that I read. It says, you can't overtake 15 cars when it's sunny, only when it's raining. Right. From your perspective, like you're playing chess now. And in the board, I have to imagine at some point the conversation comes up like, what do we do? How are we going to manage through this? Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen. Is it M&A? Do we get more aggressive? Do we wait? Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, wait. Tap the brakes. Let's see yeah. what happens over the next yeah. three months. There's no point. What's your th- thinking on it now? And by the way, for those listening, hopefully in 10 years from now, it is May 28th-ish of 2022. Well, it's interesting. The conversation that we're having right now is a really exciting one. I'll say personally, I love these environments. I think it's where we get our best work. I think it's because I've seen multiple cycles and constraints create opportunity for more creativity. Also, people realize, wow, I really love my job and I want to do my best work. And I think those two things, gratitude and creativity, start to come out in a big way. And if you have that formula, you get great product, you get great creative go-to-market. The company starts to blossom in areas where you would feel like, oh, it's all tough. It's not all tough. You got these flowers that bloom. Now, for us, we're in a fortunate position because, yes, the capital that we've raised, yes, the board that we have, the market that we're in, I think we're in a fortunate position because right now revenue matters more than anything. Like people are trying to get visibility into their pipelines and their forecasts. And we know exactly what's going to happen with Clary. So, you know, because we use our own solution with precision, we know already what's going to happen this quarter, next quarter, et cetera. And when you have the ability to go from a scenario where you don't know where you have revenue leak. You have no idea if the board came to you and said, given the environment, where are we seeing the leaky bucket of revenue across our funnel? You don't even know. But we do see where we've got some things where, hey, pipeline's not creating as fast. Hey, conversion rates aren't moving quickly enough. Hey, we see that maybe there's some net dollar retention pressure in this segment of the market. And we already see that happening. That allows us to forward invest in some areas, which we are. Yep. 
in this market, we're forward investing in a bunch of areas. And then change your mix and maybe emphasize one segment over another and say, okay, we were planning on doing headcount spend in this segment, but we're deciding we're going to actually, given what signal we're seeing, we've got that headcount allocated. We're going to move that to a different segment that we think is actually going to outperform. Having your ability to know what's going to happen with your revenue is arguably the most important thing you can do. And so that's what Clary does. We're in a fortunate position there. On other aspects of it, of not just investing, because we effectively have an infinite amount of runway because we can get to cash flow break even if we want. We've got a ton of capital that we've raised. That brings us to M&A. And we do think that there's some very interesting opportunities out there where we can extend our value footprint in a meaningful way that's a little bit more, I think we're going to be more efficient use of that capital in doing some of these M&A transactions. If of the which, stock market keeps going this way, you might be able to buy Salesforce here pretty, pretty soon. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's so funny. You know, but we are excited about that. And, you know, in my board note, one of the sentences I use in the board note is that we're leaning in to this environment yeah, because we think that this is where we will literally do our best work. hundred percent. I have to ask you. Yeah. Uh Oh, this sounds like it's going to be a zinger. I'm so excited. No, no, no. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know if I believe in zingers mostly because I'm so intrigued and this is just right in Jubin's wheelhouse. I was going through and I read every LinkedIn article that you have ever wrote. And one of them titled the metrics of marriage. How my wife and I transformed our marriage by acting like CEOs, August of 2021. Yeah, I got in trouble for sending that and not, not letting my wife proofread it. A couple of her friends sent me LinkedIn saying, oh, did Julie approve that? Oh, poor Julie. I'm sorry if you're listening. I'll ask you in this way. Why did you start to do this? And what is it? I think it was originally driven by fear, the mindset that is in that note. I don't ever, ever want to look back and say, I put more into my work than I did my family. You know, when people say, hey, family first, are they really putting family first? So I started to think about, I'm learning all this stuff about how to be a better executive and how to manage milestones and how to set goals and how to think about themes and framings and all this stuff and help the executives realize their fullest potential and create a place of safety and all this stuff. And we're learning, we're reading. We read Fred Kaufman's book. We read, you know, five dysfunctions of at teams. At work, you're saying. Yeah, all yeah. this stuff at work. You're like reading, reading. You're like this an book, improvement that book, machine. This book, that. And I'm going, where's the books that we're reading about being the best dad, being the best partner, being the best family member? And so... You know, my wife and I really kind of looked at that and said, and it does drive her crazy sometimes, <laughs> is I want to apply a lot of the things that I've learned and there's a direct correlation to how you can apply to your family life. And I'll give you an example. You know, you have to have a vision for your company. You have to have a vision. You have to have a mission statement. And you need to have goals and methods and targets, OKRs, whatever you want to call that connect to the North Star. And you want to be able to have sessions where you check, how are we doing against that? And you want to have accountability to the things that mm -hmm. you aspire to achieve. 
why don't we do that for our personal lives? Why don't we set a vision statement for, and we did this when my kids were born at age three. I still have this. I actually sent this to somebody that asked me, oh, can you send that to me? It's on a clear well slide, actually. I still have it. And Julie and I, when they were about three, I- mission statement. It was a variation of that. This was, when our boys turn 18, what do we want them to say about their childhood and about our parenting? And we wrote down just topics. They were bullets, bullets in a slide. Yeah, objectives. Things like passion for giving back, balance in life, passion for academic pursuits. Those are three examples. Being outdoors was another example. And Julie and I would check it every 90 days. And we'd say, hey, what did we do? And we'd say things like, oh, let's go for a hike. We haven't gone, we haven't taken the kids. We haven't been outdoors with them in a while. And there's simple things. And so that's one of many tools that Julie and I have put in place. Their measures, their vision statements. And then when Ronan and John Max turned 18, we actually printed it out on their 18th birthday and we had them grade us. And one other big picture point is, have you ever asked your child, how am I doing as a parent? What can I do better? Where am I falling down? Even when they're nine or 10 years old. And you do that with your directs. How am I doing? The check-in, we'll do a little 360 here. And anyway, so... The reason about that blog, there's a bigger picture point there about that blog, which is I feel like our job is to help our families realize their fullest potential first and then work is second. And you should be checking yourself and holding yourself to a very freaking high bar, as high, if not higher, and have the tools. And you even in this article, which I thought, by the way, I agree with you. you. And I'm not just saying that because we're sitting across the table. I agree with you. I actually, listening to you, am a little bit surprised that that's not very normal in the sense that like, what are our goals? How do we measure ourselves against those goals? A good example. I've always been very, very afraid of committing to somebody because I believe that it's the most important decision that I make in my life. Mm. Okay. And so consequently, I put so much importance on the decision and probably not nearly enough importance Mm. on the way that we grow together. I was asking one of our founders who was in an arranged marriage uh-huh. in India. Yeah. And I said, dude, I got to ask you, are you happy? And he said, I'm very happy. Yeah. Never met his wife. Yeah. Two I got kids, a lot of friends that have arranged kids. marriages. Yes. They're very happy. I know. They and, all are And happy. so then that kind of got me down the rabbit hole of looking at the data on these types of marriages. And by the way, the divorce rates, okay, what are the confounding variables there? Like there's religious reasons why maybe you wouldn't get divorced or whatever it is, right? Maybe they're not happy, but they're together, whatever it is, fine. Yeah. And so as I like started to unpack this, I realized like maybe it's not the starting point that is actually that important, whether that's raising your kid or whether that's your wife or significant other. And sure, there needs to be a minimum bar of like, they meet these things and these are disqualifiers otherwise. This is just a long-winded way of me coming around to this idea that the starting point is far less important than it is what you do to make the most of it together. It's the most important and the most difficult relationship in some regards. It's hard, right? And it is a mindset and everyone's different. And 
Uh, you know, you can't really judge others at all for who's in a marriage, who's not in a marriage. But I can only personally say that for me, I just feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world because my kids are about to go to college and Julie and I are going to be empty nesters and we cannot freaking wait. And, and you guys, like uh, an example of this that you talk about in the article, you have win rates for date night. There's like a measurement for, did we do uh, go on a date? You tell me. So every morning, I'll just tell you other tooling that yeah. I have. I would just want to bring up this word for the listeners, which is intention. And I just ask the listeners to ask themselves, do they live their life with intention? I'm just learning this. I'm not like some professional psychiatrist or psychologist and I know all things. I just am fascinated by this idea that if you live your life with intention, I think you live your best life. And so an example of that would be my morning ritual. I write three things I'm grateful for. So it's my gratitude practice. I have an affirmation list of three things that I'm going to affirm that I will do these things. I will be this person. And then I talk about the things where I'm not very good. I'm not very good at these things at work. I'm not very good at these things. And, you know, you reframe them as opportunities. I'm not really good at these things personally. Like I need to follow up with those family members or I need to go to the doctor. I haven't been in the doctor for a year, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. health and friends would be two things of opportunities. And then I write down to your point about date night, I'll write down, okay, what are the things for the week or for that day, the top three things that I we're going to achieve. And that's just written down on a piece of paper. There's no screens, no keyboard. And then right before I go to bed, I check it all. Check the gratitude, check the affirmations. I check the opportunities and I check, did, did I execute well today? And date night is a great example of that. Like, are Julie and I spending time with each other? And am I showing her my deepest gratitude and love? And that could just be in a simple form of just giving her a hug and holding on to her for what seems like longer than a normal hug. That's a gift. So it just really helps me feel like I can live my best life with intention. And the date night's an example of that. I think about how would I apply that for me? My only concern is that do you leave room for spontaneity, number one, and part two, I would be very worried that like life would throw something at me and then I couldn't go on that date night and then I'd really beat myself up for it because I committed to myself and I committed to someone else that I would go yeah. do that. Similar to like if I create incredibly strict rules around salad for lunch, which I do, I'm a neurotic about it. And the minute that I deviate from that, yeah. and maybe this is just me being a psycho, but I, I beat <laughs> myself up because I'm like, I am the guy that eats the salad. Like I don't eat salads. Like I am the person that eats healthy for lunch, which means a salad. And whenever I deviate from that, it's almost like, okay, well, like I'm being disingenuous to my identity. I don't know. I I think there's a lot of research on this about being hard on yourself. Yeah. So you're not hard on yourself. Like the date night doesn't happen. It's okay. I think I'm still hard on myself. I'm still learning how to, you know, they call it. I forget the framing of it, but you know, this idea that you need to love yourself and people go, what the hell does that mean? What do you mean <laughs> love yourself? Yeah, yeah. I've gotten so much better at it. And the, you hear people say, as a society, we're way too hard on ourselves. And I think in the United States, we just beat ourselves up for not achieving this or not doing that or whatever it might be. So I have learned over time to, if I don't achieve things, it doesn't mean I'm a loser. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you can go, huh, I wonder why I didn't achieve that. I wonder why I didn't do that. Huh, 
wonder why I had that goal and I didn't really achieve that. And let's be with that and ask ourselves, what can we do better? And I think that that takes a lot of practice. When I was sitting with Ariana Huffington, her and I were having this discussion and she said, Jubin, you know, if someone talked to me the way that I talked to me, I'd kick the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, prayer. Yeah, there's, that's a great example. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, Julie is going to be mad at me if I keep you here for too long. Um, right. So thank you, Julie, for letting me borrow them. I always end the same way. Is Clary hiring? Yes. What are you hiring for? Plus, like, is there plus openings. any key roles that are real like thorn in your in your side right now that all you want over. all and, and all over the business? If you look, I would say that we're gonna double or triple down on R and D. So for folks that are looking to build world class product that's focused on solving problems around the most important business process in every company in the world. You should come check us out. Should they reach out to you? Should they apply on the website? On the website. Yeah, I think on the website is probably the best way to do it. Okay. Last question. What does grit mean to you? What does grit mean to me? It's the only question that you knew you were going to get asked. It's the only question that I've had. I, I, you could tell how, how I prepared for this meeting. <laughs> it's the only question that I'm definitely going to ask. Is that right? Only, oh my God, that's it's hilarious. It's the only question that I... Always well, ask. Th- okay, good. Well, it's good that I'm not prepared because you'll get an authentic answer. Uh, grit. It's a mindset that I've taught around, and this is the way I just believe about my life, is that no one is going to work harder than me and no one is going to get in my way of achieving what I want to accomplish in my life. And, you know, call it tenacity. And when you go through adversity and hard times, as we've talked about in my life and also in business, you start to build up muscle. You know, you can build up a lot of grit. You know, if you've been through hard times and I've been through a lot of them, you're in your 40s and 50s. You've got a lot of grit and you can use that to your advantage where others don't. Others are weak. So I think grit serves you well. Great answer, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the time. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.